This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Dr Emma Shortis from the EU Study Centre at RMIT joined me in the studio to talk about the latest in American and British politics. Then, Dr Matt McCarthy from New York joined me via Skype to talk about his new book, Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic. Matt is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vile Cornell and a staff physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's also the Editor-in-Chief of Current Fungal Infection Reports. Then, finally, Warwick Smith, a Senior Economist at Per Capita, joined me to talk about the history of unemployment and welfare policy in Australia and how it relates to our current day policies. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. I'm delighted to have with me back in the studio Emma Shortis, who is based at the EU Studies Centre at RMIT, and she's a regular on this show. We often talk about American politics, and it is interesting that American politics and British politics have been colliding in many, many ways, and that's why we're going to talk about both. Um, and it's all very exciting, really, um, this week with the uh, prorogation of uh, British Parliament, which means it's getting shut down for five weeks because Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister of Britain, has decided it should be closed in the lead-up to um, British's, Britain's exit of the European Union, uh, which is, of course, at the moment, October 31. Um, and so Parliament will be shut up until two weeks before that date, Um, And there's many reasons for that, which we will get into in just a moment. But I'm going to play a little bit of audio for you before we get into our chat. This is from American Vice President Mike Pence, who just visited uh, the United Kingdom, gosh, about a few days ago now. And um, he's put up this video and audio up on Twitter. And when I watched it, I was quite intrigued as to um, how he's framed uh, Britain and America's relationship with Britain, and I thought it would be a good starting off point. So hopefully if technology goes to plan, you will be hearing this audio, and then we'll get into our chat. The United States stands without apology for a strong, prosperous, and free United Kingdom. It was my great honour to meet with Prime Minister Johnson at 10 Downing Street. I offered the President's regards, and I assured him, that the United States of America supports the United Kingdom's decision to leave the European Union. I believe if we're to ensure that the 21st century witnesses a renaissance of commerce between freedom-loving countries, it'll be the United States and the United Kingdom that lead the way. Our two nations will stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and we will show the world how free and fair trade can promote prosperity and peace across the globe. The United States... Now, there you go. There's a bit of propaganda if you've ever heard any. Uh, Now I welcome Emma Shorters. Hello. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me back. You're welcome. It's great to have you back in. Now, 
Did you enjoy that fantastic piece of social media that I just uh, played for you from Twitter? It was very impressive. Hey, I have to admit, I hadn't actually watched that one. I hadn't turned the volume on on my phone to hear yeah. it. But yeah. You missed out. Oh, so really. American. Hey. Isn't it? <laughs> like this rousing music and, you know, yeah. trade. It's almost like trade is going to like bring world peace. Yeah. Well, I think, I think in that we can kind of see a bit of an indica- indication of what they're really up to in that sense, because I think that the American Americans are kind of sniffing uh, a bit of a weak Britain when it comes to to trade deals, and they're pretty interested, I think, in in getting a deal that's going to suit them really well. So in in the UK, I think Boris and kind of pro Brexiters have been talking up this trade deal with the US that it's going to kind of slot in and fill any gap that's left by the. the Britain leaving the European Union, economically speaking, so they're going to have this great deal. Trump's called it, you know, the greatest deal of all time in the, the language that he uses all the time. But, of course, that's not that's not true in that it's, the US won't fill the gap filled by the EU, but it also kind of gives the impression that the, the Brits think that the Americans will just, like, negotiate a really nice deal with them and, they'll, mm. you know, they're all friends, like they have this shared commitment to freedom and free trade. But what the Americans will do is is go really hard. They'll do what they always do in free trade negotiations and they'll, you know, try and force things in like allowing their corporations to sue people who changed their laws or yeah. things like that. Things that the European Union has been really good at protecting its citizens against. And, of course... Britain doesn't have that experience or hasn't had that experience of negotiating bilateral trade deals for a long time because the EU's done it on their behalf. So they don't even necessarily have the skill set there that they need in order to negotiate this deal. Mm. And so I think what Pence and, and Trump are sensing is is a vulnerability that they can exploit. Isn't that interesting and uplifting? <laughs> As you can tell, this discussion is going to be really positive. Um I I love being a little bit kind of facetious about politics when it comes to the US and Britain because it's just nice to have some different politics that's removed from Australia for once. As I mentioned, it's kind of refreshing to not look at ourselves. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to be, you know, have the luxury of being really far away from it it all. Yeah, Yeah. it's nice to be a continent, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) there's ocean separating us Uh, that said we are very globalized and that is why a lot of people are quite interested and uh, following US and British politics and also because as we saw with our dual citizenship uh, sagas there were a number of dual nationals from Britain who also have an EU passport that will be no longer um, in existence soon But um, one of the things that's particularly interesting to me when you're talking about trade and this kind of like, I mean, they're they're kind of like, oh, we'll stand side by side and we're going to have this great and powerful friendship. And, you know, it's almost like back to World War Two and even better that they're kind of like, you know, really united um, and going to have a renaissance. Yeah. And, you know, all this kind of language, which also screams populism in a way because and a little bit like supremacist um in this discussion and and making it sound like yeah there's a a kind of unique bond that we have that's like not what other countries have at least that's what it comes across as in this kind of these videos and messages that we're hearing from both sides um but boris johnson was in scotland i've been following him too closely i think on (laughs) twitter (laughs) 
And I watched a video of him standing in a paddock in Scotland near some huge Highland cows. And um, he was saying, oh, how great this trade deal with America is going to be because we'll be able to sell our um, beef from Scotland to America at, you know, amazing um, prices and, you know, we'll be able to have freer trade and, like, they will they could even buy up to 50% of our high-quality beef, which there's clearly a market for. And, you know, he, Boris Johnson is literally um, blindly optimistic because yeah. he has to be um, in a way. He's almost trying to create a reality that can't possibly be brought forward. What are your thoughts on these kind of really differing um, perspectives that they're coming from when they're talking about this new relationship that they're having. And presumably it's also interesting in the context of Scott Morrison being, you know, quite populist in a way and um, getting along exceptionally well with Boris Johnson and Donald Trump at the last meeting that they had a couple of weeks ago. It almost seems like there's a bit of a, a bromance between these men. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think, they, you know, on the surface of it, they have a lot in common, especially when you talk about Britain and the United States, you know, Pence and Trump and, and Johnson, I think, have all ridden a, a wave of, you know, I think what we have to label basically racist sentiment. So they're, they're their focus is on immigration. A lot of what Brexit is about, what of what getting out of the European Union is about, is about fears about immigration. And you know, you see the same kind of language in Britain about you know in, being inundated with migrants, etc. It's the same ha- is happening in the US at the moment in the Bahamas, and the same happens here. You know, you have this kind of fortress mentality that's not actually based in any any truth about any you know about any of that. And that mm. again speaks to this issue of, of Scottish beef. You know, Johnson kind of creating this narrative where, you know, the Americans are our great friends and we have this wonderful relationship and they're going to buy all our beef. Like, if he thinks American beef farmers are going to allow that to happen, he's got another thing coming. Like, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that the US has had such animosity towards the European Union is about agricultural market access, Mm -hmm. right? So, But it is, I think, more broadly about just kind of bold-faced lying and, as you say, kind of constructing this reality that just cannot possibly exist. But in all three cases, in the UK, in the United States and and here as well, there is this will, increasing willingness to tell these lies because there are no consequences. So you have Johnson lying about the US, you have Trump lying, you know, all the time. And even here, you know, I was really struck but it's really small thing where where Scott Morrison, when he was he was going to the G seven, you know, he's invited as a guest, basically as an observer, and he issued a press statement saying this is the first time an Australian prime minister has been invited to to go to the G seven, and all these journos turn around and go, um, no, no. what? Like I was there with with K Rudd in yeah. two thousand and whatever in Italy when he was invited to the then G eight. And so, you know, the, these lies are immediately falsifiable. We we can turn around and say you're lying, but mm. actually nobody cares and How there are no consequences. Notice? Exactly, yeah. you know, and that's a small thing, but it so quickly and so easily turns into a big thing like, you know, issues around Brexit and, and Johnson talking about the US and, and what will happen after Brexit that create this kind of false reality that is really damaging and can really, like, have significant impact on people's lives. Mm. Yeah, these, I mean, yeah, as I said, it's kind of nice to be at a distance, but it does have a huge impact. And that's why when we look at things like Brexit, um, the population is protesting almost as much as Hong Kong is protesting. And it's becoming, you know, pretty shocking every day to see the types of... um, 
I guess, strongman politics that Boris Johnson is engaging in. And a lot of people are saying he's a threat to democracy in the sense that he's closing down parliament for basically the longest period it has been quite arbitrarily, in fact, to stop uh, parliament stopping Brexit with a no deal. So Boris Johnson, um, interestingly, seems to be quite hell-bent on having a no deal um, he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in compromise at all. Um, and you can't really win when you compromise, can you? But if you go out all guns blazing, having pre- supposedly tried, that's more honourable, presumably, in his mind. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. There's a, this kind of complete loss of a, an ability or a willingness to compromise kind of across the Western world that, that compromise is, is exactly as you say is seen as a weakness and that's a real problem when you when you look at Europe because basically Europe the European Union and a lot of those uh, European democracies are founded on the idea of compromise and only function because they have been able to compromise mm. and what we're seeing is this kind of brinksmanship and and this idea that yeah, you know, Johnson does seem to be setting it up so that he can say, well, everybody was against me, Parliament was against me, therefore I couldn't get what I wanted, so, you know, I'm out or I quit or we'll, you know, we'll start again, rather than kind of trying to work out the best possible deal given the situation. Because, And that's the interesting thing, you know, we only ever talk about up to the 31st of October. Then Nobody's mm. talking about kind what of what happens, happens next, like what what is the shape of the relationship between Britain and the European Union. Nobody's talking about that. It's, it's, it's kind of scary when we, you know, we think it's kind of set up that we'll get to this date and all of a sudden things will kind of be clear or, or something will happen finally, something will, will have some kind of moment where we understand and we know where to go next. Mm. And, you know, just, just, isn't happening and and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So it is kind of scary, I think, when you have people willing to play these games, which have such enormous consequences. It does have immense consequences. And we saw last week um, when Parliament was sitting in Britain that uh, a lot of Conservative MPs, Tory MPs, went against their own party and Prime Minister to cross the floor essentially and to band together with the Liberal Democrats, with the SNP, with Labor, to um, stop a no-deal Brexit occurring by creating legislation to say that if... Um, for some reason, we don't get a deal and Parliament does not sign off on a deal that we will not leave the EU without a deal. We will seek an extension and that it would basically become illegal for Britain to leave with no deal. Yep. That's pretty big. What's even bigger is that Boris Johnson has basically said he would ignore legislation and pursue it in court and basically deny what Parliament has actually legislated. Yeah, which is a pretty extraordinary thing to say. So I'm not, I mean, I wouldn't profess to be an expert in in kind of British domestic politics, but luckily a really close friend and colleague of mine, Dr Chloe Ward, is an expert. And, And the way she's kind of explained it to me is that the prorogation of Parliament, while it was kind of concerning and went against the norms of British politics, there's nothing actually illegal about it. Johnson is well Mm. within his legal rights to do that, to suspend Parliament. There's precedent. And you could kind of see the logic of that, that he's saying to the EU, you you deal with me and nobody else. What is kind of scary is then, you know, Parliament turning around and unlike in the US, the opposition kind of actually banding together and trying to do something to check these kind of, you know, strongman tendencies that, that Boris is 
engaging in and, you know, basically, as you say, forcing him to take no deal off the table, using their parliamentary powers to check the Prime Minister. But then the Prime Minister turning around and saying he may ignore the laws, like that, that it particularly to me in, in the context of British politics, you know, you would expect Trump to do that. Trump does mm. that all the time and says he's going to use executive orders to, to do all these things that legally he can't do. And of course, Trump now has the courts basically on his side, so he can do that kind of stuff. But in British democracy, I think that is a really significant step, you know, saying that you're going to ignore the will of the parliament in order to crash out of the European Union with all of the consequences is pretty scary. And, you know, that's the other thing that parliament's trying to do. They're trying to force him to make public their plans for a no-deal Brexit because, you know, it's worth remembering that in the event of no-deal on the 31st of October, we're talking things like food shortages, medicine shortages, border chaos, and, you know, we haven't even started talking about Ireland and what mm-hmm. will happen on the border in, with Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, which Johnson doesn't seem all that worried about. So, you know, there's this kind of confluence of events that makes things, I think, very scary and so much disinformation and so much polarisation as well. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody can really say for Britain that they see a way out of those kind of deep divisions, even if they go, end up going to an election or another referendum or whatever. That's, that's no guarantee that these, these issues are going to be resolved. Mm. And what is quite unprecedented um, and what... Funnily enough, a lot of American commentators have been valorizing is the fact that these conservatives, 21 of them who crossed the floor, had went got, went against um, the wishes of Boris Johnson and co. Um, they are now getting expelled essentially from their own party and not that they probably want to stay in their own party after that. <laughs> Um, but they are basically being denied pre-selection now as a conservative to run in potentially a looming election. Um, and that is what really tipped over Amber Rudd on the weekend, who is a very important figure in the Conservatives and um, has been a minister in a range of governments. And she's also the Conservative whip, which is really like the person who coordinates all the votes and all the members like a whip would in Australia. And um, she also said she is resigning from the party and cannot stand by and watch her colleagues who have actually stood up for Britain um, against their own self-interest, that she can't really stand by and see that happen. A lot of other Britons are quite shocked that this is happening in a Conservative party. One might presume other parties would be more ready to expel their own um, members for not towing the party line, but one that's based on personal liberty and freedom is, you know, pretty shocking. But seeing then all these American commentators say, oh, well, you know, why don't our politicians, you know, sacrifice their own self-interest for the greater American good and start to, you know, openly denounce Trump and criticise him and cross the floor on these issues. What are your thoughts, Emma? Yeah, look, uh, it's a really good question and I think that is one of the really big differences between UK and US politics at the moment. You know, we can, we tend to kind of think, you know, Trump is Trump is Johnson, Johnson is Trump, but that is one of the really big differences. I think, I mean, in particularly the context of the Conservative Party in the UK, the reason we're in this situation in the first place is because the Conservative Party kind of outsourced their internal war over Europe to the British population with mm. disastrous results and it didn't work either, did it? Like, you no. know, so they're still in civil war. So I think that's why you're kind of seeing these dramatic rifts, you know, Boris Johnson's own brother, Joe Johnson, mm. resigning as well. So it's splitting apart families, as we know. 
And so you are seeing this this shift in the Conservative Party or the, this rift, sorry, but that's not necessarily that surprising given how divisive Europe has been for decades in that party, I mm. think. And I, I think a few commentators are kind of predicting that this might even be the kind of the split of the Conservative Party, the demise of the party, and, and that certainly seems possible. It's also Johnson kind of doing a Trump, as much as I just said they're not, that you know, they're not entirely the same. Johnson is consolidating power, you know, deselecting these people, centralising people, mm. centralising power, making sure he's got people around him, you know, who who share his exact kind of ideology, which when it comes to Johnson is is basically just Johnson and, by, yeah. you know, Boris Johnson getting himself ahead and, and keeping power to himself. So, and then I guess in the US, you know, it is a the the party loyalty. I think is a, a little bit of a different situation, and and Democrats are doing, especially the younger Democrats in the in the House, in the House of Representatives, are, are doing as much as they can to check Trump. I think the concern in the US is not necessarily in the kind of in Congress in the in the elected bodies. The concern is when it comes to checking the president is elsewhere. It's in the kind of, um, I guess, the machinery of government. So I've been really struck. I don't know if you've seen in the last week or so in, in amongst all of the of the chaos, Trump um, kind of doctored a map about yes. uh, about a hurricane. So he, Which is illegal, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can't doctor a weather map. <laughs> so he used his Sharpie to – because he tweeted out that Alabama was, was under threat from this hur- hurricane, mm-hmm. which it wasn't. None of the forecasts said that it was going to get there. And then he, so, But then he tweeted a picture of a map that where he kind of extended the path of the hurricane with his Sharpie, right, to say Alabama was, in fact, in danger, which is, like, yeah, illegal, also, like, really dangerous to suggest to people that they're yes. in danger when they're not. Evacuate. To, yeah, emergency. or to, to not trust these forecasts. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm what I'm kind of getting at with this this one particular story is that then the um, National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration, I think it's mm-hmm. NOAA, the kind of yeah. agency that does this, has refused to contradict the president. Right, wow. so we've had lots That's of awkward. lots of situations where these these agencies, even in kind of seemingly fairly innocuous or or, or situations where actually it's their duty to correct yeah. the president and say no, Alabama, like don't evacuate, it's okay. Aren't they these, supposed to be apolitical? Yeah, exactly. And they've refused for for whatever reason. I think because of risk aversion, because of wanting to stay away from politics, to check the president. And that's really scary because as Trump gets more confident, as he's kind of exercising his power in all kinds of different ways and and testing the limits, he's not being checked by Mm. the kind of few agencies that are left to do that job. And and that, I think, is the difference. Whereas in Britain, you know, you have conservatives who are kind of finally standing up. You know, I'm not sure it's like the press is sometimes characterising them as like really brave martyrs. I'm not sure if that's, you know, that maybe is going a bit far. But there's still this kind of willingness to step back and check that kind of strongman power. And in the US, I think we're just, we are seeing it, but not where it's needed. Mm. It's interesting how many connections and parallels are emerging, yep. isn't it, between British and US? <laughs> it sure is. Disturbing. Um, so let's, uh, I guess, catch up on both politics, get to where we're at now, because I think um, not many people were probably watching British Parliament <laughs> at <laughs> midnight, <laughs> like me. Um, every night last week. <laughs> it was really good, though. It was quite it entertaining. Was. Yeah, I've got to say I really enjoyed it, <laughs> watching the live stream. Yeah, it was really good. Um, but what I was really interested in was when we were talking about 
uh, the end of the Conservatives, the Brexit Party is um, becoming more of a thing. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, Nigel Farage was famously one of – he with Boris ran the um, – leave campaign for the referendum on Brexit. And uh, it was interesting to see over the weekend that um, cabinet ministers had suggested they wouldn't rule out forming coalitions or doing deals with Brexit, the Brexit party, um, should there be a snap election. So they're almost slating an idea of essentially the Conservatives like merging almost or at least being a coalition like the Lib Dems were with uh, the Tories. And that seems to me quite a dangerous proposition given how far right a lot of people in the Brexit party actually are and also that policy-wise they seem to be quite aligned. Like, for example, um, Nigel Farage saying that he would basically either reduce or get rid of the inheritance tax in Britain – um, you know, like there's all these yeah. examples where millionaires and billionaires and people who are in the elite of Britain are kind of, you know, almost boldly, bold in a bold-faced way saying, well, do you know what? We're going to, you know, put forward policies that are in our direct yeah. benefit. And then you're seeing this kind of like revolution in a way it's only kind of starting it seems to be still at a low level from people who are not in that one percent who are saying actually this is ridiculous and insane and it seems like things are getting more polarized and that perhaps uh jeremy corbyn's politics don't look so radical anymore doesn't look so radical anymore because of the fact that his politics which are quite left-wing and people have called him a socialist and you know also other people have called him a threat to democracy which in comparison to (laughs) boris johnson he probably isn't um you know we're now seeing this kind of divide open up that where previously there might have been some level of crossover or potential at least for compromise. I think that's right and I think that's probably another one of the similarities between the UK and the US where it is exactly as you say these kind of the 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 1% or the elite. And with Johnson we have to remember that he is very much a member of the the elite. You know so, sometimes we forget I think because he has this kind mm. of like gaff prone persona that he's constructed. You know, he went to Eton, like he went to Oxford. He is he's the kind of stereotype of English privilege. And the, I guess the, what's what's happening very much similar to what's happening in the US is that they, those elite are, are, are getting – well, they're less willing to kind of disguise their self-interest in, in those policies, as you say, like, like Nigel Farage with the um, inheritance tax. And so that is kind of shifting. And, and we're also in Britain, I think part of what that is about is the kind of shifting political ground that everybody's standing in. So polling suggests, and of course, polling is notoriously unreliable. <laughs> we shouldn't necessarily focus on it. Mm. But polling suggests at the moment that, that actually winning power outright for either Labor or the Conservatives would be really difficult. And so mm. they're talking about building coalitions. And I think that's why, you know, it's, par- it's partly just self-interest to, to pursue an alliance with the Brexit party because the Lib Dems, have been very clear that they're not going no. to ally- not going to um, go into alliance with the Conservatives again because it didn't work out that well for them last <laughs> time. 
Um, yeah, their credibility is pretty shot right yes, now. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And and so I think, you know, that's what we're seeing there. But also absolutely, as you, as you said, a kind of political alliance, which is not dissimilar, I think, to the Liberal Party and, and One Nation here, you know, where you, you're seeing a convergence of those kind of really extremely conservative views around things like immigration, around things like wealth and inequality. And then at the same time, and again, this is happening in the US, you're seeing the backlash against that. So you're seeing, you know, rising support for Jeremy Corbyn's policy, not necessarily the man himself, but his his politics and his policy. And the same in the US where people are embracing the term socialist, which is like unthinkable, yeah. you know. Even, even a few years ago. Yeah, even yeah. 12 months ago. Like yeah. to say, you know, for, for Pete Buttigieg, who's pretty conservative, he's a Democratic candidate for running for the Democratic candidacy for president, for him to turn around and say the Republicans are going to call us socialist anyway, so let's mm. not even worry about it and just pursue the policies we want to pursue, for Sanders to be kind of openly, you know, quite happily saying I'm a socialist and and not getting the same pushback, for, you know, young Democrats saying they're socialists and laughing about Fox News calling them socialists rather than yeah, kind of running freaking scared. Out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> absolutely right. I think that, you know, the political ground that we have kind of understood – as established, those kind of political dividing lines are changing so rapidly. And when you're talking about a British election, you know, potentially in a couple of weeks, like honestly, nobody knows who's going to, how that's going to play mm. out. Like if people are telling you exactly what's going to happen, I think you should just ignore them. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's dangerous today for anyone to engage in crystal ball gazing. Yeah, totally. It might have been ridiculous before, but now <laughs> yeah. it's completely pointless. Yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a historian, so I can fall yes. back on my profession and be like, that's not my job. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, it's just it's just I think it's kind of impossible. Like, given the the speed at which things are moving, given given that shifting ground that we just talk about, and given how you know sometimes opaque the motivations of of people kind of pulling these levers are, you know, we don't ex- we don't really know what Johnson thinks even thinks he's doing, let alone what he's actually doing. Yeah. And so, yeah, as you say, trying to predict what's going on is is incredibly difficult. Yeah, and we will not predict. So. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Only evidence-based here. <laughs> very right. important. Um, you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM. Now, Emma, before you leave, I noticed that you are wearing a white and black top <laughs> and I also noticed that I'm wearing a navy and whitish top. Yes. We are striped today. That wasn't a coordination <laughs> faux pas. Um, but I didn't actually realise that Emma Shortis, you are a Collingwood supporter. I am. Yes, I've we've managed to get away with, <laughs> with not talking about it. Not but sure I why am. or how I let you in the studio yeah, I know. after the weekend. I've tricked you. Um, you did. True. <laughs> I am. I am a passionate Collingwood supporter, I have to say, but with the caveat that that Eddie is revolting and I hope he goes soon. So I'm very much on your side there when Thank you, you when you're railing against Eddie and his gentleman's agreement about oh, away shorts. Oh my god. Yeah. That clash discussion, if I hear more about what colour shorts Geelong should wear. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah. I've I've followed that debate on Twitter closely as well and it was harrowing to watch really. A lot of people made an excellent point which is that Collingwood changed their jumper 20 years ago to have more white on the back and the gentleman's agreement was probably before that. So it's all completely invalid. It's totally We've invalid. all we've all moved on. <laughs> Your handshake is not relevant. Oh, it's not geez. our fault that you couldn't tell the difference. Like, you know, it's up to Collingwood who's the away team to 
yeah, you know, yeah, technically wear their the away team. jumper. Yeah, yeah, it was your home ground. It was, even though it was our home game. Yep, but I won't dwell on that. Even though it's happening again this weekend, it is against yeah. an interstate yep. side. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, I'm totally on your side there. It's, it's, it's pretty unfair, joke. and yeah, yeah. Going going for the biggest club in the land has its advantages in that Doesn't stage, it? but yeah. it can also occasionally be a little bit distasteful. <sighs> yes, I know. I, I what is it that thing of like lots of my friends are Collingwood supporters or something <laughs> like that? Well, I'm a nice one. I like to you think myself are. as a nice one. I know. I'm, I was so shocked when I read that on your Twitter bio. I'm like, wow, she really kept that under the radar. <laughs> Yeah, I know when to keep it quiet. I'm yeah. not silly. <laughs> You're very clever. Anyway, I thought that was an important point to finish very. on. Yeah, <laughs> Emma, thank you for coming in and for keeping your um, gloating to yourself. I really do appreciate that. You've um, protected my mental well-being this That's morning. My pleasure. Thank you. I've, I've been speaking with Dr. Emma Shortis, who is based at the EU Study Centre at RMIT, and we talk regularly on US politics and also today on British politics. And I should mention that Emma, um, along with her friend and colleague, Dr. Chloe Ward, has uh, put together a podcast called Barely Getting By. And what do you know? The first episode is Brexit. So yes. it's coming out weekly, isn't it? Fortnightly. Fortnightly. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a lot more manageable. Yes, definitely. Seems quite reasonable. So you can subscribe to that yes, in any you way. Can. You, yep, you on do. all the usual platforms. Perfect. So if you want more of Emma, you can easily access that online. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And of course, I'm very excited to have with me uh, a wonderful guest who's going to be joining me via Skype from New York. His name is Dr. Matt McCarthy, and he's written a book, Superbugs The Race to Stop an Epidemic, which is out in Australia through Scribe. And Matt is an assistant professor of medicine at Vile Cornell and is also a staff physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's also editor-in-chief of Current Fungal Infection Reports, which is a medical journal, and he's written uh, other books, including The Real Doctor Will See You Shortly, as well as Odd Man Out. Now, I'm hoping that technology in this studio works, and we hear Matt's lovely voice. Hi there, Matt. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you so much for being available and giving us your expertise today. I really thoroughly enjoyed reading this book and um, we kind of had a bit of a nerdy delight in finding out <laughs> these fascinating scientific facts, which are it's an everyday great, reality. It? Yeah. Yeah. This was a, you know, it's something I spent five years working on and I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is think about superbugs uh, <laughs> as I head to work and go into the emergency room and, and see patients with these infections. And, and that's what really you know, got me on the kick to write about this because it's, it's really consumed my life. Uh, and I, I'm delighted to hear that other people are, are finding out about it now. Mm. And for background for everyone listening, you are an infectious diseases physician, I presume, and that's your specialty. That's correct. Yeah. And so in terms of um, how you pr 
approach your your job and your everyday work. We'll get into your research and um, development of antibiotics in um, a few moments, but I wanted to understand, first of all, how you experience your job and the types of situations that you are confronted with on a daily basis so that we can understand the types of scenarios and situations that you're finding yourself in that have driven you to write this. Yeah, well, I think it's it's useful first to define our terms. You know, the the word superbugs means different things to different people. Um, some people think that it's drug resistant bacteria, uh, but people like me take a bit of a more broad view and say it also includes drug resistant parasites and fungi and viruses. And when you look at the scope of of that issue, it's projected by the World Health Organization to be the biggest killer worldwide by 2050, 10 million people worldwide per year. So this is something that, you know, doctors and scientists are thinking a lot about, but we want the public to be thinking more about too. And the reason I wrote about this is that I had seen this really interesting shift um, from my time in medical school to my time now as a practicing specialist which is that many of the infections I used to treat when I was in medical school, I could successfully do that with a pill, with an oral antibiotic. Uh, And then about five or 10 years ago, I found that the pills weren't working as well, and we started shifting to intravenous antibiotics. And now we're seeing that many of those intravenous antibiotics aren't working as well. And so this, you know, there's there's a, a lot of reasons for this shift, but it's something that I want people to know about and to appreciate because uh, it's going to be one of the most important public health issues for the next 30 years and beyond. Mm. And, I mean, you are at the coalface of this issue, um, as many other physicians are, including those who work, for example, um, in the intensive care unit or critical care unit. Um, Often a lot of doctors there will see people who have got some really substantial infections that are difficult to treat because they're already unwell. And and we see that, you know, people with lowered immune systems are more vulnerable to infection. Um, So it certainly sounds like on that scale, um, these particular superbugs when they're not easily treated or even treatable at all can be um, specifically or especially deadly to those people who are quite vulnerable. Absolutely. You know, I think that raises a really important point, which is that not everyone is equally at danger from superbugs. Uh, It's really important to know um, your risk. And the easiest way to do that is to talk with your primary care doctor or your general practitioner and say, how's my immune system? Because if your immune system is functioning properly, you don't really have that much to worry about on a day-to-day basis. Um, By contrast, if you have a medical condition that weakens your immune system or you're on a medication that weakens your immune system, you become suddenly at risk for all sorts of microbes that are in our environment. And one of the things I found doing research for my book is that so many of the patients who I ended up seeing who have superbug infections did not appreciate that they were at risk uh, for these types of infections. And they put themselves in harm's way, whether that was cleaning out a moldy basement or going into some sort of pond that might have, you know, all kinds of microbes floating around in it. And so the first step, I think, for anyone is just to have a conversation with a doctor and say, how's my immune system? And from there, you can have a, a nuanced conversation about risk and threat. Mm, That's a really excellent point um, because it certainly seems like a lot of people um, 
main if if they're not used to being unwell or if being unwell is a new thing in their life would not think about the potential for other illnesses to follow uh, the primary illness that you might be suffering from and yeah, yeah you're abs- you're right yeah it might be potentially more obvious when um, people might be having transplant surgery because that's something that a doctor would certainly hopefully raise with you um, given that high risk for infection in those circumstances but maybe not as much as um, people with uh, other illnesses that weaken their immune system, like even autoimmune illnesses that are already fighting off other um, yep. conditions and are kind of hyperactive. Exactly right. And, you know, what I wanted to do with my book was to tell this story of superbugs through the lens of my patients, because I think that there has been, you know, a solid amount of journalism done that focusing on antibiotic resistance and the need for new drugs. But I felt like what was missing was looking at this story for, through the eyes of my patients. And so what you meet in my book are what probably 15 patients or so who are all grappling with these life-threatening infections. And, you know, the conversations that I have with them where I say, we've got to use an antibiotic that, that may work or it may not. And, you know, what that means for, for somebody and, and how debilitating these infections and these illnesses can truly be, I think is something that I really felt strongly that I wanted to get out into the world so that, you know, to raise awareness so that we can focus not just on the dangers, but also what we're doing about it. And, and the the extraordinary people who are hunting for cures and looking for new drugs. And that was, to me, the most exciting part was was really focusing on on the optimistic side of things. Yeah, and I think that's what this book offers for me, like the rare value that it has in a sea of scary news stories about superbugs, which, you know, when I just Google it or look through my podcast app and type in superbugs, heaps of things turn up. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, doomsday scenarios. But um, when you're talking about superbugs, you often forget about the fact it has a human element to it. There are, you know, humans are the hosts of these bugs um, in many cases. And Often, I think, they must be confronted by or with a situation that they're completely blindsided by. And even often, I believe, uh, maybe primary practitioners like a general physician may not have even been aware of a certain fungi or bacteria that that shows up on a swab or a test. And they're often blindsided as much as the patient is. Absolutely. And, you know, many of the physicians, uh, I work at a world-class hospital in Manhattan, Many of the physicians don't even know the types of tests we use to identify superbugs. They don't know what the treatments are. You know, they rely on um, highly specialized practitioners of infectious diseases. And so if the doctors, if most doctors don't fully appreciate this, um, it's certainly we don't expect the patients to. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book was just to sort of serve as a primer for people to say, here's what you need to know. Here's how we got into this situation you know, starting back with penicillin, the first commercially available antibiotic, and then going through the history of how we had all of these extraordinary antibiotics being produced in the 1950s, you know, what became known as the golden era of drug development, and then how we took our eye off the ball, how a number of prominent scientists came out and said, we're doing so well with infectious diseases that we should focus on other things like heart disease and cancer, and how that shift uh, away from infectious diseases really led us to the scenario that we find ourselves in today. 
Exactly. And um, I'm going to, <clears throat> excuse me, touch on um, fungi before we go into bacteria, um, because I'm really fascinated by the fact that you focus on both and have specialization in both. And um, also the fact that I think, as you <laughs> rightly write about in your book, that fungi isn't really that sexy. And um, it's certainly... <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's not sexy ever, but it's definitely not that sexy in, in medicine. Um, and, you know, bacteria does sound far more interest, well, exciting to some people than I think fungi does. Um, but when I was speaking with microbiologists uh, and such, a lot of them say that it is a very difficult field and it's quite specialised, mycology. Um, and I was interested in the emergence of superbugs in the fungi area, um, you know, with examples like Candida auris, uh, Candida cruci, these kind of really rare fungi that presumably many people are hosting and, and potentially have, but are not, um, I guess, being overgrown uh, until a person gets in a situation where their immune system is low for you know, a range of reasons. And suddenly that kind of issue becomes a problem for them and also for their practitioner. Can you share with us how fungi has become problematic in the superbug uh, arena and the reasons why there are so few um, drugs that are able to treat these very much more rare forms of candida than the kind of garden variety like candida albicans, which I'm sure many women in particular would be aware of? Well, I'm so glad you asked this question because uh, I'm a, a fungal guy at heart. And I'll share with you, I think, a, a really interesting thing that's going on right now in the world of fungal infections, which is um, the emergence of this uh, fungus uh, Candida auris that you mentioned. So this is a drug-resistant organism that is lethal in 50% of cases. And it was discovered in the ear of a woman in Japan in 2008, and it quickly spread around the world. And in the scientific journals, we have been writing for years about this fungus and how when it comes to the United States and when it comes to Australia and to other populated places, there's going to be big problems. And nobody really got that excited about it until it ended up on the front page of the New York Times uh, in April of this year. And there was this front page story in our, you know, our most revered paper saying that there was this deadly new fungus that was spreading around the globe. And I was quoted in that story. And I talked about the patients who I had treated with this. And the good news was that all of the patients I had treated survived. And uh, I talked about how scary it was, you know, dealing with, with this infection. And the next day, uh, a prominent TV show asked me to come on and talk about that Candida auris infection. And my hospital said, we don't want you going on to talk about it. And I said, well, why would that be? And they said, mm. we don't want our hospital to become affiliated with this superbug. Oh. We don't want people to think that we're infested. And I said, well, I'm not going on to, to say that we're infested. I'm going on to say that you know, we have at our hospital the world experts who know how to treat this thing. And they, they got very uncomfortable. And people from the PR department said, we're not going to let you go on to, to talk about that. And I said, well, that seems like a mistake. Um, you know, I give lectures around the, around the world about this fungal infection. And the hospital said, well, you can, um, you can talk to other doctors about this, but we don't want you talking to the public about it. 
And that shows you how difficult this this topic is to convey to people. We wouldn't our hospital PR department would never prevent me from talking about cancer or heart disease or kidney disease. But when it comes to superbugs, people get very uncomfortable. And I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that, that this approach uh, was uh, a big mistake because superbugs aren't going away. And we, as medical practitioners and as hospitals, we need to think about how do we tell people what's really going on. And that's what my book was an attempt at, is to say this is what's really happening and here's what we're doing about it. Mm, that's shocking and then somewhat not surprising <laughs> because, right. you know, yeah, I mean, I've seen it in uh, Melbourne even with certain superbugs becoming, you know, a, a PR kind of issue and uh, people being reluctant to have that associated with a certain hospital and certainly you see outbreaks of um, bacterial superbugs like, uh, now I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but carbapenem-resistant entobacteria. C, something like that? Yep. Yep. Carbapenemase resistant enterobacteriaceae. Yeah, you, you ACA. Nailed it. Nearly got it right at the end. Um, and <laughs> that's, that's right. yeah, that's one that's become, you know, a real issue here in Victoria. Um, but it's interesting that you say that Candida auris, you know, there's this kind of anxiety or panic almost uh, and a reluctance to in- increase the panic. Um because Candida auris, when I was looking this up, um, was the first case of it was detected here in Victoria um, on the 7th of August last year uh, by yep. one person who had, um, I think, travelled overseas um, yep. and came That's back right. with it, it. And the reason that it's so difficult to, to treat this is, first of all, the organism is, evolves rapidly. But the second reason is that the pharmaceutical industry does not see much profit in coming up with new drugs to treat fungal infections because they're relatively rare. And as we like to say in in our world, it's only rare until it happens to you. Mm. And the pharmaceutical industry says we can't make a, you know, it costs a billion dollars to develop any new, new drug. And we can't justify that because there's only, you know, a few hundred cases or a few thousand cases of Candida auris every year, and it's not enough to, to recoup the investment. So what, what I do, and part of my work is is working with the pharmaceutical industry to identify prom, uh, promising drugs to say, here's an opportunity for us to treat um, a deadly infection, and here's how you can turn a profit and benefit patients and benefit the hospital all in one. Uh, and that that proves to be rather challenging, but that's what I spend a lot of time doing. Mm. Before we leave fungi, because um, I also am quite interested in, in this area, I'm interested in the um, distinction that might be made between uh, someone having candida or a fungal infection that might be localised, because I know a lot of people um, might say, oh, well, I have a fungal infection on my feet or maybe I have it, um, you know, inside me, um, as a localized yep. thing for women in particular, I know experience them. But then there's also um, candidemia, which is a systemic infection when it reaches your um, blood and also can spread elsewhere. I'm interested in how, um, in if we are if we have less and less drugs available to us to treat some of these more um, resistant strains. Are there real consequences when you can't knock it on the head when it becomes um, symptomatic or a problem at a local stage or an early stage? Is is it something that can become problematic because we don't have um, treatments? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, fun, fungi are everywhere. And if you have a normally functioning immune system, you're usually okay. Other than the occasional yeast infection for women, um, vaginal yeast infection. But when you have a weakened immune system, that fungus can get inside your bloodstream and can wreak havoc. And that's when people get really in trouble. And we find that there are very few drugs that are used to successfully combat that type of infection. And we're constantly trying to get newer and better treatment options because candida in the blood, as you mentioned, candidemia, that is that can be deadly. And I see patients die from that all the time. And we are constantly trying to encourage the pharmaceutical industry to make new drugs. But, you know, the challenge is that these drugs are given out in, you know, any antibiotic is giving out sparingly. It's only given out in short courses and doctors are stingy about doling them out. And the business model is just very difficult for these companies to, to turn a profit. And what the reason I wrote my book was I wanted people to see through the eyes of the patients, not to think about this story from 30,000 feet from, you know, profit margins and supply and demand, but to look into patients' eyes and see just how dire the circumstances can be. Mm. It's quite astonishing to think that a doctor might be in the situation where they have to tell a patient, well, you might just have to put up with it or live with it or die from it. Yeah, that's unfortunately a scenario that we increasingly encounter. And, you know, I opened my book with a patient who we end up having to treat with an antibiotic called colistin. And that is a drug that fell out of favor 25 years ago because it was so toxic. And we're using it again now because it's often one of our drugs of last resort. And so I have to have conversations with patients where I say, this might ruin your kidneys um, in the process of saving you from the infection. And those are conversations I never anticipated having when I was a medical student. Mm. And presumably as a doctor, these are conversations that you might not be prepared for until you have to have them. And um, obviously you might be well versed in those by now, given the number of significant cases you see. But are there, um, in your field, are you looking to also speak to other doctors and enable them to have um, better conversations with their patients about this? Oh, yes. You know, physician communication is something we always struggle with. And the challenge here is that, you know, at my hospital, for example, the the patients routinely say that they receive excellent medical care and they, you know, give us top marks across the board, except in the area of physician communication. They think we do a very bad job of it. And the challenge is that none of the doctors I know think that they're bad at communicating. (laughs) They all think they're actually quite good at it. So there's this disconnect um, between what the patients are experiencing and what the doctors think they're saying. And that extends to antibiotics and to superbugs, but also all across all facets of medicine. So we are are trying to do a better job at that, but it's it's a work in progress. Indeed. Yeah, um, it's certainly... Doctors have different strengths, don't they? And that's why some go into different fields. (laughs) Ones where the patient is asleep most of the time might be best suited to ones with lacking in the communication (laughs) skills. Yes. I'm really interested and intrigued now to get into what you describe around bacteria, which is, as we said, um, slightly more sexy to some people than fungi. Um, And I'm really interested in this idea around um, 
not only just bacteria that becomes resistant to antibiotics, which clearly is what one would define as being a superbug, but also what a bacteria actually is, because I was surprised to discover that bacteria actually create their own antibiotics. Well, this is a fascinating thing about life on our our planet, is that there are trillions and trillions of microbes, and they are all in this survival of the fittest, trying to kill out everything that's around them. And so bacteria can secrete chemicals into the environment that will kill the bacteria around them. And if we can pluck those out, those are essentially antibiotics. They are you know, chemical compounds that are designed to kill bacteria. They just happen to be made by bacteria. And so one of the great... Um, Uh, exciting things in science right now is that there is this race to find all of these chemicals that bacteria are naturally producing to try to figure out if some of them can be used to make antibiotics. Uh, The challenge is that it typically takes about 10 years and at least a billion dollars of investment to bring that discovery uh, to the patient's bedside. And it can be very challenging to figure out which of those chemicals we should invest in and which ones should get the, the testing, um, the necessary testing to become antibiotics. But that's one of the themes in my book is that this is sort of the future uh, of combating superbugs is looking into the soil, turning to the, the, the subterranean uh, life forms, uh, all the, the bacteria that are living in the soil beneath our feet to find the next great antibiotics to save, save humanity, really. Indeed. And you describe in one of your early chapters the discovery of penicillin, which many people would, you know, might have a basic understanding of coming from mold, um, which of course is, you know, it's a fungi as well. Um, In terms of the idea of an antibiotic, you've just shared there that like really antibiotics have existed since nature existed. Um, Mm -hmm. What's really fascinating in the start of your book is this idea that you raise historically that in you know ancient times, um, skeletal remains, for example, of Sudanese mummies were found to have um, broad-spectrum antibiotics in them or found in them. Um, so presumably this isn't really a modern phenomenon. I mean, it has been modernised and, I guess, industrialised, but antibiotics have been a thing for all of humanity. Yeah, isn't that a crazy finding yeah. that humans have been eating consuming antibiotics for millions or you know thousands of years and that when we look at the mummies they have antibiotics in their bones so basically what happened was that the pre you know the cultures of antiquity they recognized that there was some healing property in certain foods and in certain leaf leafy vegetables and they found a way to eat and consume things that happen to have antibiotics in them. Uh, and I think that's an extraordinary discovery uh, that, that just shows how, uh, how life you know, finds a way. And I think we're increasingly returning to those very fundamental principles to try to find more antibiotics. Indeed. And so let's get into some of your antibiotic research and discovery with your colleagues. Um, you say that you are really interested in one that has become really problematic, and I think a number of doctors would be aware of this one, um, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, um, yes. MRSA. And that 
I mean, it sounds quite horrible um, when I, I asked actually a friend to describe it for me um, because they actually see cases of this. And uh, they said just how scary it is because it creates this environment to live in that is conducive to what it needs to survive. So it creates a special environment in the host that it's in and has all these toxins um, that change the body in different ways. It sounds like a really nasty um, type of superbug. Why has this particular bug become so problematic? It's it's incredibly problematic. And what's interesting about it is it, that when 20 years ago, we only found this superbug in certain places like gymnasiums and in nursing homes. And now it has spread out into the community. And so it's everywhere. And the real difficulty in communicating the, the threat of MRSA is that it's all over the place. There could be MRSA on my forearm right now, but that doesn't mean that it's causing an infection. Our body's natural immune system and our protective barrier of the skin keeps us safe. Uh, But the, the challenge is if I were to have a large cut on my arm and the MRSA, you know, seeped inside the cut and into my bloodstream, it could kill me. And so, you know, I don't want people to living in, live in fear saying that at any moment disaster could strike. But many of the people who I see um, either have a weakened immune system or have something happen to them that compromises their protective barrier against MRSA. And once it's inside the body, as you point out, it produces these toxins, it changes the host, it changes the environment that it's in, and it, it li- it's very sticky. It likes to stick on to bones and joints and to organs, and it can cause a heart infection. And um, you know, I, was, I saw two patients with MRSA infections this morning, and, and both of them were very, very ill. And both of them were left asking me, how did this happen and what can I do to prevent it from happening again? And so those are the kind of conversations that I I have uh, almost every single day at work now. Mm. I mean, it must be pretty shocking to get that kind of a diagnosis out of nowhere for, for a lot of people. Oh, yes. And, you know, then there's the stigma attached to it. People mm. want to know, are they contagious? Can they go over to their friend's house? Can they have their granddaughter visit them? And these are things that, you know, we're trying to give people the best information we have with the data that's available. And sometimes the data is is insufficient to, to you know, answer people's questions. And that's where we have to, you know, really kind of scratch our heads and try to figure out how do we give people, you know, the, the right information when there's limited uh, information available. Mm. I'm interested because you're based in New York and um, obviously we're quite far away in Australia, um, that there are different, I guess, regions of the world that might have um, more resistant strains of certain bacteria than others. And certainly even different hospitals have different biomes and are surveilled in a way for the different strains that are currently present in the in the actual building itself. In terms of MRSA, for example, um, you've been working on um, an antibiotic um, which is called Delbavancin, I believe. Um, And that was interesting to me, given that it's such a a new um, kind of drug essentially, although 
you know, most drugs are basing itself on previous research and kind of evolving. Um, I was interested to to check that um, in Australia it hasn't yet kind of been utilised, but um, other other types of drugs that are the precursor to the one that you've developed, like vancomycin, is quite common still and is still yep. able to be used, in at least in Australia. Have you found that, you know, the drug like Dalbavancin that you um, have been working on has been necessary um, in your or in, in America in particular because perhaps MRSA has become resistant to a lot of the other drugs you would typically use? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And, and you know, I, I hope that Australia does not encounter what we're seeing here in New York, but I suspect that it will uh, a few years from now. And what, what's interesting to me is that the, we have a number of new antibiotics that come out every year, but many hospitals don't use the newest drugs. And part of the reason for that is that these things are so expensive that a pharmaceutical company will say, we spent, you know, a billion dollars to um, create this new drug, Dalbavancin. We're going to charge $4,000 a dose. And the hospital will say, well, we can't afford that. We'll use vancomycin, which is $40 a dose. And there are these, you know, financial decisions that are being made behind the scenes that really have profound implications for patients. And and that's what, you know, I also wanted to write about that so that people could understand how these financial decisions can affect people. And, you know, what my research focuses on is how do we bring the newest and best drugs, even if they're expensive, how do we make them accessible to all patients so that we can, you know, not only protect patients and treat them, but also prevent the, the spread of these superbugs so that everyone benefits. Indeed. And so in, in your personal experience, you know, not just being a treating physician, but also doing the science behind uh, developing new antibiotics, what are some of the, the, the reasons or the pushbacks that you might get from government and the corporate sector in America around uh, putting more money into developing antibiotics, which are clearly needed, given that you, you know, sh- share in your book that we had this ex- intense period of development uh, in the 1950s, and then a, a huge drop off. And we've almost now been caught very, very far behind. And it's almost like pulling teeth to try and get someone to either start uh, researching antibiotics or even just to stay, because it seems like a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies are divesting um, and are That's leaving right. the anti-infective space. That's right. Well, they, they tend to lose money. Um, there was a London School of Economics study which found that when a company invests in a new antibiotic, they typically lose $50 million dollars. And so increasingly, these companies are saying it's not financially worth it for us to take a risk on these things. And so what we're starting to discuss in the United States now is whether or not we should nationalize the production of antibiotics and classify them as a public good, like something like electricity or water, and have the federal government step in and start um making antibiotics, essentially. Uh, That's going to be a a topic of great debate over the next five to 10 years in the United States, uh, because on the one hand, we need new money uh, to invest in these these drugs. On the other hand, when the government gets involved, things get a lot more complicated, and sometimes it stifles in, in innovation. And so we're, we're trying to figure out the best path forward. Uh, there's also talk of pooling resources so that the United States and the European Union and Australia and 
Um, India can pool together billions and billions of dollars to invest in the most promising new drugs and then have everyone share uh, the, the fruits of those investments. Uh, unclear if that's going to work out, but that's something that's also on the table. Indeed. And I, in my introduction um, to this interview, I said how much of a public health and political issue this is, but unfortunately, it keeps on being relegated to the domain of science and medicine and patients and not being picked up by government and um, politicians. I'm interested in uh, the American health system and potentially that it's uh, more controversial to suggest government intervene or become um, producers of of antibiotics or, um, you know, directly funding antibiotic research uh, compared with a place like Australia where it's slightly more accepted and um, part of our culture to have government intervene on our behalf and almost an expectation. Right. We It's not our expectation. <laughs> we... <laughs> We get very worked up about the government stepping in. Um, but I think that when, regardless of your political affiliation, when you walk into a hospital, you want there to be antibiotics available. And I think that this could be a cause that unites uh, people from both sides of our political spectrum. Um, because I think, you know, that we, we've reached an inflection point where we need to do something. Um, you know, this my book is not a, a doomsday book of saying that, you know, we're all we're all in in uh, in bad shape. I actually think we have an opportunity to confront this issue. And it begins with civic engagement and with people understanding what's at risk so that we can put forward the best path forward. Um, and that's going to be based on, I think, people having an, an understanding of this uh, superbug issue so that when politicians come out with an idea, we can vet that idea and say that's a good idea or a bad idea. Mm. And that only comes with knowledge. Indeed. And um, in your book, it's it was quite shocking to see that really basic antibiotics that are used like doxycycline often experience significant shortages uh, where it's not available. And I'm surprised that that could possibly happen um, to something as, as simple as doxycycline. Although I'm aware that even in Australia, we experience uh, a number of shortages around um, topical antibiotics. And that presumably is re relating to the fact that, um, you know, we're in a globalised world and every country kind of has an impact on each other. Um, but things like mupirocin, which is we call Bactroban over here, has had mm -hmm. many times where it's been completely unavailable and um, people haven't been able to access that. Um, it's kind of, yeah, shocking to think that even the ones that we've developed that work, we may not always have access to. Well, there's a, a term that we say, which is that antibiotics are a market failure. And what that means is that you can't look at simple supply and demand curves to understand the production of these things because there's tremendous demand, um, yet somehow the supply runs out periodically. And mm -hmm. that's something that we desperately need to fix. Um, it happened to me just a couple of weeks ago where I couldn't use um, the treatment that I wanted to because we were out of it. And that's not acceptable and you know hopefully something will correct in the future yeah um you highlight in the book the role of the united nations and the world health organization which it seems like can play a really important or positive role in coordinating 
uh, a response that's based in government and also that influences the corporate sector. Do you think that there's hope in that sense for a, a coordinated global role for a body like the UN to be more active and to influence policy? Well, we're what I think what I think we'll have about as much power for the UN to address superbugs as there is to address global warming. Mm. It's something that there, you know, if people can't see it, then they don't always engage. And our, I know our country has a tumultuous relationship with the UN right now. Um, so I, while I'd love to see the United Nations step in and take the lead with this, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> I'm really not surprised. Um, <laughs> they have their own challenges, don't they? Um, yeah. And certainly, I guess if you're talking about some of the positive uh, elements of this book and what you'd hope that people might um, get out of it from a patient perspective, but also from a political advocacy perspective, um, what kind of things would you hope for, um, not just in terms of some of those push and pull suggestions that you highlight in your book around getting corporations to be incentivized to invest mm-hmm. in developing new antifungals and new antibiotics, but what are things that citizens should be doing to bring this to the attention of politicians and to put pressure on them? Well, I, I think that this is a challenge because we can't see these superbugs, right? They are something that we kind of hear about and then we forget about. But mm. I want people to know that this is ultimately a human story. You know, it's about the humans who have these infections and the humans who are treating them and also the people who are trying to discover new drugs. And I think the first step, once people you know, understand the issue, is to just start talking about it, you know, talking about it with politicians, talking about it in your community, saying, what are we going to do? A lot of people view antibiotics now kind of like a fire extinguisher, that it doesn't matter how often it's used, but just being there makes us all safe. And the more antibiotics we have, the safer we'll be. And so I think the first step is because this is so rarely even talked about in public life, the need for new antibiotics, to just start asking questions of our civic leaders and saying, what's your plan? You know, the World Health Organization said this is going to be the biggest killer of human beings in the year 2050. What are you going to do about it? And that starts, I think, a conversation where if we have a critical mass of people who are engaged in this topic, we can come up with solutions. And that's my ultimate hope uh, with writing this book. Mm. And just finally, Matt, given that you have been instrumental in creating another antibiotic, um, from a practitioner and research perspective, do you see that there are people, other people like you, colleagues in other countries and also even uh, in your circle, who are partnering or pushing um, with pharmaceutical companies to get some of these antibiotics through the pipeline and to keep pushing them along until they're approved by um, government bodies? Yes. You know, there are a lot of unsung heroes out there who wake up every day 
with the primary focus being getting more antibiotics available, whether that's you know searching in the dirt for the next molecule or testing it in, in test tubes and in animals and in healthy humans and in patients with infections. There are so many people out there who are, are desperately working to, to fix this situation, and I'm confident we will. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, of a strategic investment and civic engagement and getting enough people behind this issue so that we can solve the problem. Mm. Matt, it's been such a delight to speak with you on what is quite a disturbing and serious subject. So I really appreciate your um, sunny outlook and optimism. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for having me. This was a great interview. And um, I do hope that people can read your book because I've barely even scratched the surface of some of the fascinating things that you share with people about the history of this subject as well as the science. So um, thank you so much for what is a very engaging read and I'm sure we'll get people talking. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Matt McCarthy, who is, as you can tell, a doctor. He's based in New York and uh, is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vile Cornell as a staff physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital and um, also edits uh, a journal called Current Fungal Infection Reports and uh, he's written a couple of other books if you're interested. The Real Doctor Will See You Shortly and Odd Man Out and his book that we've been discussing there was um, Superbugs and uh, the subtitle of which is The Race to Stop an Epidemic and it certainly is a race and it definitely is an epidemic so um, I really do hope you can get around to reading it if that's something you're interested in that might have sparked your curiosity Um, It is a really fantastically written book and very engaging. So you can um, find out more about that through Scribe Publications. And I've seen it in pretty much every bookshop I've stopped by at recently. So it should be pretty easy to get your hands on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Now on to slightly more, not uplifting, but very interesting subjects, which is to talk about the history of unemployment policy and, um, and also the welfare system in Australia, which does have a very long and varied history. And Australia and Australians have a very interesting relationship with their government. And um, I've certainly covered that on the show for a number of interviews. Probably the most um, re- re- relevant would have been my interview with Laura Tingle about um, the government's and great expectations, her quarterly essay uh, about that, which I think was really on the money in terms of the um, public's relationship to government and what we expect our governments to deliver. And so the person who I'm speaking with now is um, going to be delving a bit into that. His name is Warwick Smith. He is uh, a senior economist at Per Capita, which is a think tank in Melbourne. He's has a number of other affiliations, which I'm sure we'll get to. And Warwick does fantastic research um, and he sees economics as a social science, which is not really much of a shock, to be honest, because um, economics did start out its life as a social science field and um, how fitting it is that it is social science is weak. So I welcome Warwick now and thank him for joining us via Skype. Hi, there. Hi Amy. 
How are you going? I'm good. How are you doing, Warwick? I'm good. Sorry, I couldn't make it into the studio today. That's okay. You're doing something which is um, very, very admirable, and but probably shouldn't be admirable, should it? Which is being a parent. <laughs> Yes. particularly a male parent, because I read um, that fantastic article you wrote about house husbands, I've got to say, which I think was really great. Thank you. Thank you. The house husband's term wasn't mine. That was the editor's, but um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's to capture a broad audience, isn't it? Yeah. Now, let's get into what has been really topical in the news recently. And I did kind of give a little bit of an indication that it's become topical for a number of reasons. Uh, One of them, in my view, being that the government doesn't want to talk about how badly the economy is doing, um, nor do they want to talk about deporting a family back to Sri Lanka. So they've brought forward this fantastic uh, area of policy to put front and centre in their return to Parliament, which has just started sitting this week. And, of course, then over the weekend we saw... Uh, a lot of debate about this apparent "quote unquote" conservative, sorry, compassionate conservatism, which is something that Scott Morrison is going to be propagating through his uh, welfare policies. What is your initial take on that development yourself, Warwick? Well, oh, there's so many dimensions to it; it's hard to know where to start. Mm. But I think I think you're absolutely right about the timing that. There are lots, there's a lot going on that the government doesn't want us to be talking about. And so they've tried to bring up the, the kind of welfare bludger bashing narrative again, even though they're wrapping it in a compassionate conservative uh, sort of sugar coating. The actual measures that they want to introduce, including the cashless debit card and drug testing of welfare recipients, is ultimately about demonising the unemployed. And it's not the first time that it's come up. This has come up many, many times under a number of coalition governments, like Malcolm Turnbull's government. Drug testing welfare recipients was raised then, or as was extending the cashless debit card even further, which has been uh, evaluated, the trials that have been ongoing in specific electorates. And there is um, contestation around how effective these policy mechanisms are and whether they um, should be extended because if you or anyone else was watching um, the 7.30 report last night, they would have seen that Scott Morrison defended this approach by saying that they work and they want to pursue policies that are working and so he um, doesn't understand why anyone would possibly see this as um, demonising or a negative development. The government just wants to help people who are looking for a job to be able to find a job. Um, What's your take on that? Well, you know, if I think if they really believe that substance abuse was a big problem uh, amongst the unemployed community, then all of the evidence says that the thing to do is to invest in harm minimization strategies and drug and alcohol treatment centres, not on forcing people to, in fact, in some instances, if this was implemented, to to be publicly shameable because at the moment the cashless 
debit card is marked. So if you see this card, it's not it, do, it doesn't look like every other credit card. You you can you know what it is. You know that it's a welfare card. And already people are talking. Those who are in in the trial areas are talking about the shame that that gives them when they go shopping to have to use this card that shows that they're a, a welfare recipient. Well, now imagine if the drug testing that's currently proposed uh, was implemented in in other areas where the cashless uh, debit card is not currently in use. You, you would have people turning up to a shop handing over a card that says they have failed a drug test. So I didn't I haven't directly answered your question yet about whether or not it works, but I think that's that's one of the very strong arguments against it. It's like a a sort of public shaming of people who are already um, kind of demonized and marginalized in our community. And you know, if if the government was really serious about not using public money to fund um, alcohol and drugs, then they could start by looking at how public money is used by parliamentarians and their staffers for entertainment purposes and the amount of alcohol that's purchased at those uh, for those purposes, and you know they could they could drug test parliamentary staffers so there are there are kind of white collar drugs that we don't talk about um and no doubt some of our public money that goes to pay uh people in the public sphere gets spent on alcohol and drugs so it, it, it's sort of transparently about punching down to use the term it's about uh blaming the people who are marginalised and who are struggling in the community for their own plight, even though, as I'm sure we'll get to, um, there's plenty of evidence that uh, it's not there. For the most part, it's not actually their fault that they're there where they are. Exactly. We will get to that. Um, I did see the report that was just released over... Oh, it was. I think it was even yesterday, very recently, around reasons why people um, don't have a job and need welfare or social security support. And the biggest driver, it seems, is poor health and um, that the government uh, should be focusing its attention on um, providing better health care, which um, our system is greatly strained and very, very flawed, I've got to say. Um, and we might say that we're proud of it, but in fact it is become, being undermined every day um, by different policy uh, issues and the constant undercutting of Medicare. Um, so many issues in our health system that directly impact or impact the most people who are vulnerable and aren't able to afford things like private health insurance. What was your um, – did you see that report first of all? Because I was interested that it came out, interestingly, um, just after we started this debate around whether drugs were something which was, you know, significantly problematic um, and the suggestion that really they weren't the the primary or most important um, thing, but in fact that healthcare and um, better health was more important. Yes, I, I haven't read the report uh, in full, but I did see the headlines about it and some of the writing that, that was written about it. I think, I mean, you're absolutely right, the the focus on illicit drug use 
is a distraction from the big issue. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitating for a moment again because there are kind of so many different levels we could talk about this, about about why there are so many unemployed people or, or the behaviour of unemployed people or uh, the sort of characteristics of uh, people who are currently unemployed. But as you say, <clears throat> the biggest barriers to people finding work if for a moment we set aside the fact that there just aren't enough jobs for all the people who want them, but the biggest barriers to, to finding work are things like people's physical health, their mental health, their their caring responsibilities. Often, you know, people have trouble finding work because they can't commit to full-time or, or to really regular work because of caring for children or disabled relatives or elderly relatives. Um, and then the, the single largest... Uh, age group recipients of new start at the moment are people uh, over the age of 55 and the biggest reason they cite for having trouble finding work is that employers think they're too old so you know they they're i'm sure amongst sort of marginalized and disenfranchised people there is a small subset who have drug and alcohol problems the important thing to also realize is that there's a small subset of every demographic that have drug and alcohol problems. So it's it really is, uh, uh, as you indicated, distraction from the real causes and the sort of real action that government could take, including, as you say, improving the healthcare system, improve, improving drug and alcohol treatment centres, and, and improving sort of broader social attitudes towards older workers, um, you know, there's so much that we could be doing that this idea that we'll focus on drug and alcohol testing is fundamentally about shifting, trying to shift the perception of blame onto the unemployed for their plight rather than looking at the actual causes. Exactly. And um, that's really important to note is that uh, there is an ideology, particularly in the conservative side of politics, that sees that being unemployed is a fault, a personal fault, um, and that remaining unemployed is also a sign of personal weakness. And that kind of ideology is, first of all, wrong, and second of all, is completely unhelpful but unfortunately does inform a number of policy proposals from uh government and we're seeing that in this uh, instance where whether people intend to or not um, by undertaking policy proposals even having a conversation like this and suggesting it's a valid thing to do to drug test welfare recipients is actually undermining um, people's confidence it's undermining whether someone uh, even would seek help from the government because of this type of um, suspicion that is now going to potentially surround receiving an unemployment benefit that someone is actually entitled to. Um, and I think that is what I find particularly problematic is that it may um, prevent some people from even seeking help. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, to take a bigger picture um, approach to the subject, that's actually entirely the intention of making life miserable for the unemployed is is about wage suppression so if 
if life is really miserable as an unemployed person and you're forced to jump through lots of different hoops and, and pointless hoops often in terms of um, mutual obligations, as they call them, um, and to live in poverty, then it makes the risk of becoming unemployed um, that much greater for those who are currently in employment and means that they are much less likely to push really hard for better wages or better conditions or to go on strike. And similarly, for those who are unemployed, they're much more likely to take a job <clears throat> with poorer wages and conditions. And so the impact is to keep wages and conditions low at the bottom. And I think, you know, it might sound like a bit of a conspiracy theory, but there's lots of uh, historical context that, that makes this very plausible as an, as an intentional approach to uh, keeping business costs down, uh, including obviously wages, which then increases business profits. And we see this borne out over the last few decades where there's been a steadily decreasing share of our <clears throat> national economic output going to wages and therefore an increasing share going to uh, the owners of capital, business owners. Indeed. And so I'm really interested in um, the idea of unemployment, which you are really referencing there, as being um, – so unemployment being a, a tool or a lever almost of government because, as we've seen, um, full employment does not mean that there is complete employment, that every single Australian who can work – who wants a job, who's available and ready, who's looking for a job, that they can actually get one. What does full employment nowadays from an economics perspective actually mean? Yeah, as, as you say, the, the kind of idea of and, and definition of full employment radically changed in the 1970s. Um, after World War II and up until the 1970s, Australia had an unemployment level that averaged 2% and and that was considered full employment. So there will always be a, a sort of small level of unemployment no matter what you do. Economists call it frictional unemployment, which is the unemployment you have while people are switching jobs. So people who are in the process of moving from one job to another or one job has just finished and they're looking for another one. Um, and the idea with frictional unemployment is that it's it's very short term. Um, and so in the post-war years, in the post-war decades, unemployment was pretty much reduced to frictional unemployment. There was no statistical category of long-term unemployed. They, they effectively didn't exist. Um, however, now we have this crazy term called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, or the NIRU, um, <laughs> which is a new definition of full employment and the idea behind this definition of full employment is that if unemployment gets low enough then you give work, workers get much more bargaining power and this is sort of the reverse of what i was just talking about earlier so if if there are very few unemployed workers then it's harder for businesses to replace people and so it strengthens the bargaining power of those who are in work because 
the best bargaining chip workers have is to is the threat to walk away. So if it's hard to replace them, then their position is stronger. Um, so what this Nairu theory of unemployment says is that there is a level of unemployment below which workers will gain too much power and will be able to bid wages up at a faster rate than inflation. Uh, than inflation. Uh, sorry, than productivity improvements. So if wages will go up faster, then we can improve our capacity to produce goods and services, and the result will be inflation. So prices will rise because there's too much money bidding for the existing goods and services. Now that's maybe a little bit uh, complicated, but the, the sort of simple version of it is that we we keep a pool of desperate unemployed workers in the economy as a tool for controlling inflation, so controlling prices. Um, and that's quite accepted economic orthodoxy now that that that's the the Nairu is sort of drifts around. Nobody exactly knows how to calculate it because it's only a theoretical kind of a construct. But it's generally thought to be five, five and a half percent, something like that. So the idea is if we push unemployment below that, we'll get a, a spike in inflation um, and that that will result in an economic downturn and then we'll get more employment. And so there's a sort of balancing point is the idea. Now, this is completely ahistorical, of course. They, 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 in order to believe this theory, you have to ignore the 25 years of Australian history where we had unemployment at 2%. Um, Why do so, you think it's become the orthodoxy in in your view? Like because it's really become just accepted. Yes. Sorry. Did you say why has it become the orthodoxy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, there's a sort of long history that needs explaining to really uh, get to the heart of that. But ultimately, what happened was the these sort of golden economic years that I've been referring to in the post-war era um, saw quite rapid and sustained economic growth, um, improved standard of living across most of society and steadily declining inequality. So it's it's sort of the one period in our history where inequality was actually falling. Um, and what falling inequality means, you know, if... if if those at the bottom are steadily getting a greater and greater share of the economic output. The flip side of that, obviously, is that those at the top are getting a steadily smaller and smaller amount of the economic output. And and ultimately, the explanation, I believe, as a sort of economic historian, is that the rich fought back. So during the late 1960s, and early 70s, for instance, uh, Colin Syme, who was sort of long-term uh, chair of BHP, was making public um, statements and public speeches calling for an end to what he called over-full employment. Um, so effectively saying, you know, this we need to bring this commitment to government commitment to full employment to an end because 
of the terrible risks that it poses to inflation. And, <clears throat> you know, we had 25 years of history to show that, that, yes, inflation was much more volatile than it is now, but it was, but it was manageable, especially with a concerted government effort to manage it. Um, so there was strong and sustained business lobbying at the time, uh, and this coincided with a big shift in academic economics across the world, uh, which was funded by big business interests. So big business interests actually funded entire departments in economics, uh, in university, economics departments in universities. And there was this new, very well understood, theoretically and mathematically quite beautiful uh, economic alternative waiting in the wings uh, for a crisis, waiting for a crisis. And, and in the 1970s, they got that crisis in the form of the um, OPEC oil shocks, which drove inflation through the roof. Um, unemployment was high and economic growth was low, a, a sort of condition referred to as stagflation. And the dominant Keynesian way of managing the economy didn't have a ready answer for those circumstances. And so the, the business lobbyists and the academic economists came in and saying, you see, this Keynesian method is a failure. Here's our alternative. We need to reduce government intervention in the economy because government's inherently inefficient. And we need to lift the rate of unemployment because it's driving inflation, even though actually the inflation at the time was primarily caused by external shocks from OPEC oil producing countries. Um, and so they successfully managed to undermine the system that had given us 2% unemployment and falling inequality, inequality for 25 years um, just by taking advantage of this, uh, of this crisis. That's a, a brief potted history of, of what happened and, and why that became the dominant paradigm. And really the core answer is that it was well championed by powerful moneyed vested interests. It's, um, it's very disturbing to think that that can happen um, and in a way that is not particularly obvious at the time, I'm guessing, and is probably easier to identify in hindsight um, than when it's happening. Um, but one thing in your paper that you published a couple of years ago was a very different approach that was directly preceding that and um, which did seem to be almost like an alien planet uh, in terms of the types of ideas that were held within it. And I'm talking about the 1945 white paper, which is called Full Employment in Australia. And um, it is available online, which is very exciting. So people can read it in full. It's not actually that long in terms of the main substance of it. But I was really interested, obviously you mentioned Keynesian principles and some people when they hear the word Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, um, very well-known economist, they would think of um, it in relation to the stimulus package that Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan put forward um, when we had the 2008 um, issues, global economic issues and avoided recession and a lot of people in the media put that down to Keynesian economics and were, you know, interested in the fact that government has kind of 
reverted very briefly back to a different way of doing things. Um, But in terms of the white paper from 1945, um, I was interested in the point 23, which said the essential condition of full employment is that public expenditure should be high enough to stimulate private spending to the point where the two together will provide a demand for the total production of which the economy is capable when it is fully employed, which is a very convoluted way of suggesting that government has a very central role to play in creating jobs. Um, And I was really interested in that idea that, um, and I know we mentioned it in 2017 when we last spoke around the idea of government having a central role, a positive role to play in actually creating jobs when there is a, a lack of jobs coming from the private sector and that um, it is very far removed from our current situation, which is uh, you just need to go find a job, you need to go and apply for this many jobs every week and go to the interviews and see your uh, outsourced job provider for further training, um, which it just seems like such a bureaucratized and uh, highly inefficient system, whereas um, previous ways of doing things, which now seem like a lifetime ago, because they probably are a lifetime ago, um, they seem to be, on the face of things, more effective and more pragmatic. What's your view on that, given that you are coming from that historical perspective of and having the benefit of seeing how this policy area has slowly and um, disturbingly evolved? Yes, I think, I think some of these issues really go to the heart of who we are as a society and, and, and who we want to be. And you know, have a go, get a go, and and all these buzzwords and the idea that, you know, we need to badger the unemployed or drug test them or force them to jump through hoops when it's actually not a controversial statement to say that there are far more unemployed people than there are jobs. So the reality is that if, every single unemployed person in the country had the perfect CV, was immaculately dressed, well-trained, punctual, you know, did everything you could possibly expect of them. The unemployment rate today, the unemployment rate would be exactly what it is today because unemployment is not a result of the behaviour of the unemployed, it's a result of how many jobs there are. And that's and that's what was acknowledged in that 1945 white paper. It was very clearly expressed that, you know, we, we believe that a capitalist market-based system is uh, on balance the best system available. Um, but in acknowledging that, we also acknowledge that inherently in a capitalist market-based system, there are winners and losers. That's kind of built into the system, a system that's competitive. Um, and if we're going to say, yes, we, we, we want this system because of its benefits, then we need to accept and take responsibility for its costs. And, and one of the costs of a market-based system is unemployment. And so the government was saying, 
all right, well, we, we want the benefits of this system. What can we do about the costs? And what they came up with was exactly what you described, uh, which is that they said the government can use its spending power when there's an economic downturn and, and private spending isn't enough to achieve full employment. The government can and should use its spending power to achieve full employment in the economy. And, and that's exactly what they did for 25 years, and they showed that it could be done. Um, and that took lots of different forms uh, and, and is quite a complex thing to do to maintain very high employment and keep inflation down. But they did it, and if they could do it, you know, I think we can do it too. Exactly. I'm um, just reminded of the fact that Robert Menzies was Prime Minister around the time that we're talking. Um, I'm interested in, like, the fact that he is obviously a – he created the Liberal Party, the modern Liberal Party. Um, Was he also, I guess, someone who signed up to this idea? He he did, though I think, you know, as you say, he was in power for for a a very large proportion of the time we're talking about. But I think his arm was twisted to Mm. some extent. So it was the Labor Party under the Curtin government who initiated this uh, program of full employment and government commitment to full employment. And they'd been in power long enough to show that it worked um, before Menzies um, took government. And there was a period where where Menzies was backing away from this commitment to full employment and uh, faced an election in 1961. And at the time, the Labor opposition was promising a budget deficit of £100 million in order to bring unemployment back under control because it was considered at that point completely out of control as it was approaching 3%. Um, and that was an outrage, and the, and the people were outraged about it. And uh, Menzies almost lost the election, lost 16 seats, um, and scraped in by a few hundred votes, and pretty much immediately adopted the opposition policy and, and committed to, a, in fact, a £120 million pound, uh, deficit at the time in order to keep unemployment down. And... You know, that deficit surplus conversation is another big part of this story. The the government had a massive uh, public debt following World War II, the biggest in our history, and, and yet the post-war years, virtually every budget was a, was a modest deficit. And during that period, because the economy was doing so well and it was growing and the, the the size of the economy was outgrowing the debt. So even though the budget, the, the governments were running deficits every year, the size of the deficit compared to the size of our GDP and therefore the kind of burden of the debt, I suppose, if you like, uh, was falling. So we we ran constant budget deficits completely sustainably. And I would argue that our economic success during that period was because of the deficits not in spite of them. So it's another area. And, you know, there are too many of these, I think, the, mm. the sort of more you get into economics or, in fact, quite a lot of other fields, the, the more you realise how many public conversations are kind of the, 
the opposite of reality. Indeed. Well, so, that's why history is so valuable, isn't it? Because we forget, given that, you know, not many people have that long history, personal history and memory, um, that, you know, it's important to reflect on how things have changed and whether they really reflect what our values are and whether there are, as you've suggested there and shown, other things happening and other interests at play um, that are perhaps not as visible as um, would be preferable uh, because that would mean that you could have a lot more pushback from the general population. Yes, definitely. And again, you know, going back to that era of full employment, there was a, it was an actual clear political embrace of nuance, which is sort of <laughs> beyond belief t- today in a way, where we've got three-word three slogans uh, in place of policy. But there was a discussion of, of costs and benefits and a, and a discussion of what kind of society we want and, and whether we want to be looking after those who have um, kind of been a victim of the system that we've implemented. And the the result was a public that were committed to, um, to full employment and okay about paying taxes. And we had, we had, you know, marginal personal tax rates far higher than they are today um and for the most part people supported that because they saw what it did and they and they understood the consequences of doing otherwise and i think you know so much these days is reduced to sort of black and white good and bad with us or against us um that a lot of that nuance is lost and and the result is that we do lose kind of public support and public enforcement of um, of some of our good social welfare and, and in, indeed sort of broader economic management because people don't understand it well enough and the politicians aren't making the effort to inform people. Warwick, <laughs> I could talk about this forever um, and it seems like there is a lot more to cover but I'm really grateful for your time today in explaining some of that history and often for us I really think that economics has become so technical um, that it's often quite hard to decipher um, from a you know layperson's point of view so I really appreciate your expertise and, and also your passion about this subject because um, yeah it's just... I think, as you say, the nuance is missing and it's important to bring it back. So I think you've really done that for us today. Thank you, Amy. Yes, as you say, there's just there's so many different angles to talk about this, you know, that it's difficult even when I'm answering your questions to know which angle to come from. Uh, But thanks for having me on the show. It is my pleasure, I've got to say. And um, hopefully we can uh, link people to other resources on Twitter if uh, people are more interested so they can see the other angles that you come at. And I know you've written a number of pieces covering the various angles on this subject so we can share that with uh, people who are listening at the moment. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Warwick Smith, who is a senior economist at Per Capita. Um, He does many other things and has a range of research projects. And as you heard 
very much is versed in the history of economics in Australia and it's uh, fascinating to hear from him. So, um, yeah, I will share those links later if you are interested. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.